Stay strong to your spiritual side. Enga iwi o te motu, tēnei te mihi ki a tātou katoa. No mai ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. Ko Justin Murray, ahau. Ko Maraia Rakaraku, ahau. No mai hoki mai anō. I'm Maraia Rakaraku and you're with Te Ahikā, the Kaupapa Māori program on Radio New Zealand National. If you believed everything you saw on film or the small screen, you'd think our old people, Komatua, are either stereotypical weeping nannies dressed all in black or grumpy as koro who hate their mokopuna. Well, think again. We kick off this week's broadcast with a kōrero with two kaumātua no Ngāti Parau, a wirimukārāua called Josie Carr, who last week were two of the five kaumātua awarded Ngā Tohutohu Ata Kini Ihaka. And they give us some insight into what it is and actually what it means when you are a kaumātua. From humble beginnings in Rotorua to superstardom as an actor, or as author Paul Little puts in the book, From Haka to Hollywood, that's the title of Te Arawa actor Timuera Morrison's biography. And a well-suited title, I reckon, Neha. We're talking about a Māori boy who was raised by his people in little old Ohenemutsu and ended up in Hollywood. There were a lot of times where people go, oh, how's the unemployed actor? Because there was more unemployed actor than actually actor. <laughs> so it was back to the old, uh, out of work again, boys, uh, back, uh, shift over. Justine and I talk about the book later on. And if you're too intimidated by gym bunnies at the gym but you need to lose weight, what do you do? And how can your iwi help you? Well, for Paul Stanley of Te Runanga on Maiterangi in Tauranga Moana, it means supplying gym equipment for the people. And we mean literally. The Runanga bought crates of gym equipment, loaded it onto a truck and took it out to the peeps. The whole focus of this project is really just getting our people mobile. And um, at, in the lead up to the mobile gyms, which, were, which are going to go out live probably next week, uh, we've had a... Um, Māori guy is a personal trainer and I've sent him around into um, these same neighbourhoods which are going to be running the mobile gyms and his sole purpose is to work with triple XLs in those neighbourhoods if I go there and um, there's a scorny person in there the whole program's going to get shut down Polder Stanley coming up later on That's what we've got for you this week so stay locked in I'm Maraia Rakraku and you're listening to Te Ahika. Now, if there's one word that gets continually overused and misunderstood or loaded up with meaning, it's this one, kaumātua. Here's a definition from the Fountain of Knowledge Wikipedia. Okay, it's not the Fountain of Knowledge, but some people think it is and are probably quoting it and using it in essays and discussions right now. Kaumātua are respected tribal elders of either gender in a Māori community who've been involved with their whānau for a number of years. They are appointed by their people, who believe the chosen elders have the capacity to teach and guide both current and future generations. Kaumatua have good knowledge of tikanga, history and te reo, and their contribution ensures that the mana of the whānau, hapu and iwi are maintained. Barlow, 1994, refers to Kaumatua as being the keepers of knowledge and traditions of the family, sub-tribe and tribe. Let's break that down, because there are a number of generalising statements. Often we make the mistake of respecting people purely because of them having reached a certain age, and of course that should be the case, but with that doesn't necessarily come knowledge. Kaumatua aren't necessarily appointed. 
You become a kaumātua just through the fact of ageing. If you speak on behalf of your marae as a kaumātua and as its representative, well, that's another thing. You are appointed. Yes, Pākeke elders kaumātua do have knowledge, but the days of assuming this applies to all kaumātua, well... I think we've all experienced situations where this isn't the case. Perhaps in the true sense of the word, back in the old days or even a few generations back, Komatsua had knowledge of tikanga, te reo and history. That isn't necessarily the case anymore. Now before you all jump on your emails and start sending us very angry ones, you know, because after all we are only kids compared to Komatsua, there is a statement here that I do agree with. Cleve Barlow, and that's this one. Kaumatua are the keepers of knowledge. Whether they are aware of this or not, and whether it's played out in a public way, like on the pai pai during fai kōrero, or in the garden, talking about the different ways of planting kai. Now, kaumatua isn't just applied to men either. It's applied to women and men. Now, I've seen that before, Justine, where people just think it's applied to men. And it's that issue we always have where Māori concepts are squeezed into these prescriptive and very limiting definitions that then can play out in bizarre behaviour. And by bizarre behaviour, Farno, I mean, a few weeks back I saw a picture of a pōhiri, for example, and they were giving a hongi to Mickey Mouse. That's a little bit bizarre. But this seems to be rife in government departments, though. I've seen it everywhere where it can feel, honestly, a bit like Dalakomatua. When an old man usually, and this isn't meant to be insensitive, is prated out to do speeches and then almost shuffled out of the way afterwards. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because of a kōrero that I had last weekend with husband and wife, Ngāti Puro, Wirimu and Josie Carr, which we'll play in a minute, where I put it to them what they saw was the role of kaumātua. They were in town to collect an award created to celebrate kaumātua making a positive difference within their respective communities and commemorate Sir Kingi Ihaka. Called Nataunga Ata Kingi Ihaka, Wirimu and Josie were two of five kaumātua that included a queer who identifies strongly with Ngāti Kahununu, Wairukuruku Maire, Kihingatai from Tauranga Moana and Vera Morgan no Ngāpuhi. You'll meet those kaumātua over the next few weeks. For now, here's Wirimu and Josie Ka talking about their roles as kaumātua based in Rangitukia, the village on the east coast of the North Island that's the first place to greet the sun, otherwise known as Paradise. The roles we, we play in, 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 in paradise are various. Um, there, there, there are some, uh, some arenas where young people, nephews, are saying to me, Oh, uncle, uncle, you sit on the pipe. I'm being instructed what to do. Mm. And, and that's okay. And... Uh, and there are some arenas, some hui that we go to, that that uh, the values of the old people are not practiced. You, you talked about Fanaotanga earlier. For example, they've forgotten how to, when you hold a hui, you all take your roro of kai for the table. Well, some arenas at Ngati Pro. I've forgotten that 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 behaviour that's required of them culturally, and uh, it's quite sad uh, that 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 is happening like that. The tamanaki is really not practiced, uh, but I don't think we're alone. 
but uh, but but that's in our role as Khomata. Uh For example, there's an expectation that we'd be on a committee, and we say to them, "No, no, why ho mau hei pakeke, why ho mau hei kaumatua, kukuto ngarigiri ngoto marai nanya, ngame tamariki makuto mai, kumau hei tautoko." And uh, we have to constantly remind our own relatives that that's our role is to totoko, not to do the washing up or the cooking of the kai. There is even expectation for us to cook kai. Well, we we're capable of doing it, but we're slower at doing it now. And uh, and 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 but there's that that role that we. Uh, so there's a different pressure on an expectation of the kaumātua, besides the dāla kaumātua one. Uh, for example, we went to a tangi in Tararoa, and where the young people said, oh, kāpai, uncle, you hear my hautata whaikōrari, almost being instructed mm. that what my role is. Mm. And that's fine. I think it's, it's a matter of maturation from their point of view, of how you handle and, and and I guess that will come about eventually. I don't know. But that's the scenario. Those are the scenarios in which we find ourselves. Um, for example, we go there and some other people stand and want to do the krang and there's their kuya there. Can do the krang and the others will be standing looking pretty that, uh, well, I'm going to do the kranga today. <laughs> And yai kaita pera etahi o etahi raonga maraine, and and so I guess Tao Māori is still evolving. There's always uh, the possibility, the high probability of of hurt and offence, and and you know I have to, I I don't have to, but I. I find myself saying to people, <laughs> you know, hello world, we're here. Josie Carr. It could be because of Ngawananga that they hold now, they have Wananga for Karanga, where the young people are taught how to Karanga. And uh, when it comes to your own marae, that is the best place, I guess, for young people to, to practice their Karanga. But as long as the queer is there to guide them, but they don't. There are times there the, the queers are there, all right? But they walk right over. They haven't got that um, respect, I suppose. Aroha. Aroha. Aye, aye. Well, basic, those basic uh, values, eh? Aye. Uh, aye. So, but it's still critical that we have a, a role in that scenario, in those various scenarios. Hey, hey, afina tenura e tifano. Hey, nga whakatūpatone, yarato. Hey. There are times you do wish you could get there, but you just haven't got the energy or you're not feeling well up to it. Hey. What about when uh, has... Some of our 
you know, as we've become more distance from te haukainga and more and more of us are in the cities and now, you know, it's three, mm. four generations of in the city, but that's not to say this doesn't happen at home either. Mm. Um, are you finding that the necessary grooming that you just learned through being there and practising it isn't happening? Because I'm just thinking of some kaumatua... You know, people tend to think being kaumatua comes as an age thing, and there's an automatic assumption that there's wisdom that comes with it too. And of course there is, because you've just lived life longer. That's right. And you had more life experiences uh, than than the majority of the people. And and so that expectation is there. Uh, Unreal, some of it, and the pressure with that expectation. Some of it is unreal. And and there are some kaumatua who really don't know what they're doing. And and we have our fair share of those, and that's fine. But we talk amongst ourselves to sort it out. As it should be. As it should be. And we get people like, just for example, Kurodius, who wanted to resign from being a trustee of Marae. And I had to remind him, who put him there? Mm-hmm. Then he started to think, he said to me, oh, the old people. Mm-hmm. I said, well, did they tell you to run away when the pressure is hot, the kitchen's hot? Mm-hmm. He looked at me and never said a word, shook his head. It's all right, he says, I won't resign. Yeah, so we're constantly there to support each other as Kaumatua, which is our role too and to remind ourselves of our obligations in terms of the facility like a marae mm. and our obligation to our to our traditions to maintain those is what happens when information from a kaumatua is wrong and it's it's a matter of other kaumatua cross-checking mm. with each other mm. to to nullify that to 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 remedy that and to put the right context in what was said. Which is fine, but what about when there are so few or no other komatua or rather knowledgeable komatua around? That's that's a good question. I think the the the, the Wananga comes in then and the the organization of the Hapu or the Marae to set itself right. By Wananga, Wirimu and Josika don't mean in the contemporary sense, as in courses at a building, but Wananga, that is targeted learning and discussion amongst hapu and whānau, generally around things like tikana Māori. Uh, because there are tensions, and tensions do arise. And uh, I had chaired a meeting just the other day where I just cautioned the speakers that the, the tone of their quarter getting loud and bordering towards personal uh, attacks. So, you know, we have roles to play amongst ourselves. It's really knowing how to deal with it publicly without offending. And uh, that's that, that's critical role for and uh, I always put and talk to Josie about this 
that our behavior has to be such a standard that the kaumatos, that the children will imitate it, you see. And our own mokopuna are good at imitating. That's how they learn anyway. <laughs> so if you do the wrong thing, it will come back to you. Mm. Mm. So I... So I know for myself, growing up, most of my growing up was really away from home, like in coming into Wellington. And uh, just going on to a marae was scary for me, and I never used to go with him to start off with. So it was part of my growing up that I had to learn to waiata and all those things. And karanga for me. And karanga. I, I wouldn't go with him on a marae to start off with. I was mm. too terrified. So I had to go to wānanga. She had to she had to freeze. She's, I think she's still here in Wellington. She actually held them at the Timangungu, Les Karangale, Wananga. And I went along. Then I got encouraged. Then I started learning Wayata. Ah, then I started Next going. Minute. Next minute. <laughs> Next minute. And I was able to go home and stand on the morning Wayata, you know. And I felt good about it. But it is a growing up present. It's up to yourself. It's a maturation thing. You have to want to do it. And now going home, I feel quite comfortable now. I'm happy I can get up and do a way thing and not feel scared about it anymore. Mm. <laughs> our daughters yeah. are still scared, the ones you met. Our before. son won't go and he doesn't want to be chairman of our marae. I said, why not? He's got skills uh, by like the dozen. Okay, two lives here. He lives in Gisborne. Because I'm not confident in Korero Māori yet. Mm. <laughs> so they... I'm sure it'll, there will come a time when he will be ready. But you know what? Yeah. Until we do get there, Aye. time's passing. That's yeah, right. yeah. You know, yeah. as I've got and older, my cousins and I talk and about this, how, and my brothers, Aye. it's like, you know, we're looking behind us. Mm. And you're like, you're next. At, and it's us. Aye. You're next. And I'm like, <laughs> us. like, we're the Komatu now. Oh my goodness. There's like all the little kids Aye. behind Aye. us now. It's right. like, geez. It's us. That's right. We've got to get it together. That's right. But not talk about getting it together. Yeah. Just Doing get it together. About it. Just get it together. That's the importance of family reunions that we're having mm. to to mm. develop that confidence. It's about confidence. It's it right. about confidence. Because sometimes it can only take, so I know my other cousins, it can take a comment like, oh, you're not really from here. Aye. And right. they get... Real mama. Aye. It's like, you yes, know, it does. next minute... Aye. Their kids are teenagers and they've never been home. That's right. And it's what a cruel thing mm. to say. Yeah. That's why he was saying that what he comment he made about these two getting up to almost. You've um, only been home for five minutes. Jeepers! Yeah. Do you want me to slash my wrists and bleed here? Yeah. <laughs> we were called uh, Lambton Key Farmers when we, <laughs> when we first went home. back. <laughs> and they made a comment on the marae at home. And we weren't even, we thought we weren't, but that's how they felt. Oh, it's just a control thing. <laughs> it's a control thing, put you down. Yeah. So but we all go through, no matter which whanau or which hapu we come from. Or which eh? age you are. Which age to right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
kāne koro te nei ko paradise. Taku marae ko ohine weapu, ohine pare, ohine How's that for something to chew over? Kaumatua Antul Kuropaka from the movie Whale Rider, or Nanny's Dressed in Black Crying. Watch those generalisations and stereotypes and be mindful of the oldies. Look after them and listen. Yeah, and give up your seat on the bus too, blinking heck. Timura Morrison from Haka to Hollywood by Paul Little was published to the end of 2009 and I'm not sure if you remember Justine but at the time when they were doing publicity around the book uh, Tim Hurta was saying how you know he's a little bit broke he hadn't worked for a while and he jobs were Jobs were scarce jobs were scarce and uh, that's what was kind of almost driving his um, the publication of this now Paul Little if you remember he was the um, author of A Reluctant Hero Wuli Apiata VC. And what I really enjoy about uh, those two books, which we've reviewed lately, is that you don't get a sense that as an author, he's overpowering the voice of the subject of the book. Mm. So Timueta Morrison's voice <laughs> comes through quite strongly <laughs> in this book. And, you know, some may say that's a... Uh, Typical Morrison, eh? Well, you know, Morrison's from Te Arua, Māngai Nui. So, kuera te whakatauki, but, uh, but Paul's not a ghostwriter. No, no, not at all. Uh, I'm guessing that he just sits down with the person that he's talking to, like he did with Willie, and uh, just records the cordial. And it's nice, you know, he puts a nice structure into the book. So this one's kind of like chronological. Starts from when Timura was born. And Overall, you can kind of see because he kind of owns it too. Because like like what you just said about uh, <laughs> Mangai Nui, uh, he kind of almost has little digs at that him, himself. And about you know he was the first male born into a line of females, 
And so he, I'm sure you know people in your lifetime who are, you know, sons after 15 sisters <laughs> or 12 sisters and how they end up being uh, spoilt and indulged and... Almost the golden boy, would you yeah. say? Almost the golden yeah. boy. So, Mariah, I mean, just too, too many of those who, who may not know who Timuera Morrison is, who, who is he? Okay, so he's a te Arawa actor. Te Arawa actor. Who's probably acted... acted in roles that have really hit the New Zealand consciousness. So, I mean, famous lines, Justine. Uh, <laughs> cook us some beep eggs. Jake the Mus, once we warriors. You're not in Guatemala now, Dr. Yeah, Rose. You're not in Guatemala now, Dr. Ropata. <laughs> and like, that wasn't even a line that he said, but that's, not, that's a line that was applied to a character that he had on New Zealand's only long running uh, drama. Yeah, Shortland Short Street. Street. And, yeah, he's managed to, in his career, well, this is my opinion, kind of have some really out-of-it decisions in some of the characters that he's, that he's played, right? I mean, Bob Wire. <laughs> Bob Wire, we, next to Pamela Anderson. And you know what? When he got that part, that was quite a thing, like the early 90s, he got that role. It was like, wow, this Māori boy from mm. little old uh, Tamate Kapua Marae in Rotorua, which has a population of, what, 150,000 plus, <laughs> is in Hollywood next to, at that time, she was this huge. Baywatch babe. Yep. And I think that was one of her first roles, actually, for Pamela Anderson. Um, and here's old uh, Tim Wera Morrison uh, hanging <laughs> okay, out with okay. um, Barb Wire. <laughs> so did, would you say that that, put, that movie put his name um, on the map? Well, it kind of put him on the radar, because then, you know, what followed from that was he acted alongside Marlon Brando, one of the greatest actors ever, yeah. and, uh, I mean, Stanley Kowalski, yeah, uh, and that hideous film, The Island of Dr. Moreau. But actually, you know, what I really enjoyed about this book is that Timueta really owns his stuff. He really owns that he's acted in crap things. He really owns that he's had, um, you know, he hasn't been a great partner. And he's really very honest about that. And But he really owns that he's a show-off as well. And he loves skiting. You know, he got a little bit carried away by demanding huge salaries on certain projects that he worked <laughs> on. Uh, but it's, you know, he doesn't out anyone as being awful. And, he's, and there's no malice. In what he's and uh, what he's talked about, and I really, really enjoyed that because at his heart, you really get a sense that this is a Tauranga boy who was destined to be on a stage right. somewhere, whether that was Kapahaka, yeah, or acting in Hollywood, and you just get a real sense of that kind of simplicity that that his um, upbringing within his whānau really shaped him that way. I mean, he says this really lovely thing that he's had so many great teachers in his life. Mm. And he plays um, homage to, you know, Don Selwyn, to um, his agent, Robert Bruce, to heaps of people that have passed away, like his sister, Tiny Morrison. Tiny Morrison, yes. His auntie. Yep, that was Atarita Maxwell, Nemaraya. And she was, Tiny Morrison and Atarita were pretty much... Um, well, the creme de la creme of Kapahaka, and they would have helped, um, obviously helped um, tutor, nurture Timuera Morrison with his Kapahaka in um, 
Ngāti Rangiwewehi. That's right. Mm. That's right. And he talks about his uncle, Howard Morrison. But, you know, there were events that shaped him. His father was killed in a car accident when he was just a young boy. He was um, traumatised when he got sent to boarding school. Just the homesickness that he faced and how he thought it was quite rugged that, you know, one minute he's with his whanau and then the next he felt the wrench (laughs) of being placed up in boarding school. But he, he is his... His older sisters were in Auckland, so they kind of tempered that for him a little bit because he got to hang out with them. And uh, what I love, kind of sounds like a mummy's boy. Oh, he was. He was. Well, he was treasured, eh? Because he was the firstborn to carry his Kroa's surname because he was the first son after a long line of girls. He says how he was in the race. There was a race to get born between him and his cousin, and he got it, (laughs) and he won. That's why he got the name. So back to, so moving further from the book, which, what's the name of the book, please, Mariah, again? It's Timuera Morrison, From Haka to Hollywood by Paul Little. How did, when did he catch the acting bug? Uh, he ended up doing this course, uh, but prior to that, he ends up describing how he was working for the Ministry of Justice. So he would get to drive around Mirupara, all around Te Arawa, driving old fellas around. Uh, he said during that time he learnt a lot of whakapapa. Wow. Uh, and it really grounded him within the rohe. Uh, and he'd hear a lot of stories. So, you know, another sense that I got from this from this book is that, you know, my mother often says this is through your lifetime, people contribute to your life and it's like they give you little bits of information or advice or something will happen and, she, and mum says how you put it into your kete and then... When you need it, you use it. Mm. And that's mm. what he talks about. But, you know, one of the first films that he acted in was Rangi's Catch. And uh, that's where he says that he caught the acting bug. And then uh, his uncle, Howard Morrison, started running an acting course. And he, he went on that and he just became hooked. But he says a quote here, Justine, this is towards the end of the book, which I think adequately describes actors. It's easy to think you are the centre of the universe when even the sun is put at your service to make you look as good as possible. You can spend a lot of time waiting for it to do what it does every day. Right, there. The sun looks better now. We've got a little flick of ball there. Oh, he looks beautiful. Let's shoot to him now. Because in that chapter, he's describing how everything just turned to custard during the filming of River Queen. Because yes. as you remember, he plays the rangatira in River Queen, yes. right? Yeah. And how, uh, I mean, it's quite a famous story now, how the lead actress played up and made it absolutely miserable for everybody. Yeah. And he says that as, a, as an actor, he can understand why that happens. But what he's learned over time is that you don't need to do that. You don't need to be a spoiled brat. Diva. Yeah. Delayed. You don't need to do that. Yeah. And he gives quite a lot of acting hints, actually. He talks about what it's like to act. Like, you know, not being in the industry, I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, about being in profile, about (laughs) about trying to pull the focus towards you. (laughs) I mean, we're laughing about it, eh? But like I said, it's the honesty with which he talks about that that uh, makes this such an enjoyable read. How often did you have little chuckles to yourself in the book? Oh, 
all the way through. Yes. I mean, I was reading it on the bus, uh, coming in and out of work, you know, over the last couple of months, and I'd just start laughing because I just think, oh my goodness, that's so typical. Do you think, Manaya, that you need to understand Māori kaupapa, Māori life to um, feel a connection to Timuera Morrison because he's Māori and you understand those nuances in those stories about whānau and upbringing to make you connect to the book? I don't think so, because he is such a well-known figure within um, New Zealand consciousness in terms of the films and the parts that he's played in very, you know, various films. I mean, he is a Star Wars... Django Fett. Yeah, he's part of that, that family, so yeah. they have fans worldwide. It yeah. just sounds crazy. Mm. Crazy. Uh, no, because it's very warm. You know, the text is very warm, and his personality shines through right. it. And it just cracks you up. Well, it was cracking me up. And you get a real sense, like I said before, that this is somebody who has been loved and indulged by his whanau, who has ended up working in an industry that he absolutely loves and he thinks, and it becomes obvious, that he was made for. Mm. We've spoken about um, Tim Weta's acting career and how he started, and I want to talk about a role, one of the most, I suppose, pivotal roles in his career, which was Jake, Jake the Mus. Mus. That character, um, after he did the film, there was some, you know, reports and stories that that character just followed him yep. everywhere like a shadow. Um, does he talk about that in the book at all and how he's coped with that? He does, and he talks about how, as an actor, um, because you have to bring a character out, you know, because your your body and is he what's used up. to to bring out a character that. He strongly believes that you carry that character with you for the rest of your life. So he thinks there's a little bit of him that is Dr. Ropata and that there's a little bit of him that's Jake the Mus. But what he does say is that he is very much not Jake the Mus. Right. He was a very violent character. Yeah. Violent character. And that even, you know, his father were a little surprised that he got the role. <laughs> His family like, were surprised. Was a little surprised. It's like, what's that skinny little bugger got that role for? Because he was sort of on Shortland Street at the time as he, well. He was very slim. There was a period where he was working on Shortland Street during the day and then going to uh, the Once Were Warriors set at night. And he said that was really, really difficult to manage because those characters are so separated from each other and that he was feeling very, um, you know, slightly too personalityed. Yeah, but then again, he emphasises that uh, for each character that he's played, he carries that character with him, and no doubt he will for the rest of his life. He said he found it very hard to um, step out of Jake the Musk character because it completely absorbed his life. And the aftermath of that movie and just the effect it had around the world, like even now he says that people recognise him from it, you can be forever associated with that character in your own personal life, and that's something that he absolutely hates. Mm. Mm. Speaking of his personal life, I mean, there was a few years ago his partner, Piata Melbourne, at the time. She's, he's got one son, doesn't he, to Kim Willoughby. Willoughby. Yeah, who is a muso from way back. Yep. They met. When the cat's away. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then uh, he's got one son yep. to her. He's got a boy, James. And he he talks. And this is what I mean about how he really owns his stuff. He talks about being, um, 
you know, when his baby came and how hopeless he was <laughs> and how uh, unprepared uh, he was young and, you know, there's the mother of his child coping with just having a new baby and there he is going to the pub and having a wandering eye, that's what he says. And but you know, he really commends uh Kim Willoughby and her husband Ian Morris for the great job they did in bringing up their son mm. and how his involvement with his son has come towards the later part of his life. And he went on to have a daughter with Piata Melbourne, Ahorangi, and he's, he's, you know, it's just really lovely. Um, he talks about the love he has for his children and how, you know, while he's done all these things that are instantly recognisable, the most important thing that he has done is be the father of these two children. Mm. That's his important role to date. Yeah, so, I mean, as a book, I think it's um, it's very sincere. Is it an easy read? It is. It is. It's an easy read. I'd um, definitely recommend it. It's. I found it very entertaining. Yep. Hucker to Hollywood. <laughs> yep. From Hucker to Hollywood, Timuera Morrison, Poor Little Penguin Books. Any um, pictures of him with all his celebrity friends? There are. There's uh, a couple of pictures of him on set. Uh, well, there's pictures of him with his whānau and performing and when he was a young fella at Kura. And there's pictures of him on getting his makeup done on set for a couple of movies. Yeah. Cool. Uh, on set for Speed 2. Remember how he acted Speed 2 in the boat. Yeah. 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 With um, Sandra Bullock. Yeah. That's right. And he, you know, he says how he thinks that he could have maybe had more of an industrious career in Hollywood if he had mastered the accent, the American accent, but he couldn't quite get it. Right. <laughs> oh, but he says this high case story. There's yeah. a movie that he did with Harrison Ford and Anne Hesch and him and Cliff Curtis are in it and I'm not sure I know when I first saw it right we were sitting there going oh my god there's Timmy and Morrison oh wow there's Cliff Curtis and then the next minute was yeah Keita speaking Māori they oh. actually speak Māori in that film because the character uh, the director said to them could you say something to each other <laughs> and so they started making up all this gibberish all this <laughs> And basically what they're saying is, come on, let's go. So the conclusion of the book, Mariah, Timuera Morrison from Haka to Hollywood, does he talk about the cliché next five years, future? You know what he does say is that he talks about how if... Because you get the sense that during his career he's made leaps of faith or he's decided, oh, I might do this now. Oh, let's do this. You know, he's always he's always seems to have taken opportunity. And what he says is that, you know, sometimes they weren't the right decisions, but I made them nonetheless. Yeah. And they've shaped me. Yep. And he says, I mean, not strongly, but he does say, you know, give things a try. Just give it a go. And, you know, if I'd played safe, because he says if I'd played safe, I could have stayed in Shortland Street for another 10 years. If I'd played safe, I could have done this, I could have done this, I could have stayed in Rotorua, yep. you know, mm. done this, done this, done this, but he hasn't. And he has taken a chance and he's tried something and then, you know, he's failed. And he said he is the, the result of mistakes he's made 
and decisions he's made. And I really like that. I like that he said he's a result of mistakes that he's made as well. Because, you know, often people can gloss over the bad things. Yeah. But, you know, the bad things have contributed to your life as well. Yeah. And he, that's what he says. He just says, give it a go, give it a try, and just go for it. I'll just read what, he, what the last statement is that he says yep. in the book. So he says, my opportunities came from all directions. I was doing radio, Commonwealth Games... Then went on to do various movies. I hardly ever said no to a new experience. I've had my share of ups and downs and they continue to this day. But the biggest lesson I've learned is that the more things you try, the more chance you have of finding something you're really good at and will love doing. That was my motto. Give it a try. The only way to find out is to just do it. We are our own great surprises. have worked on a number of health campaigns for Māori. There's Peaceful Warrior, which is about identifying Māori men who want to live violence-free lives and assisting them to do so. The mobile clinic that provides free health checkups. And now there's the mobile gyms, for as Paul Stanley, he's the manager, puts it, those who are triple XL, sorry, no skinny people allowed. A mobile gym facility, now we're talking full-on gym equipment inside crates, that are picked up and well plonked in the community for people to use. And how's this for a gym fee or membership? Five bucks a month. Yep, so that's step machines, treadmills, rowing machines, as well as all the free weight gears. Still in the process of setting it up, I met up with Polder, who explains what they're doing to combat obesity in the Tauranga Moana area. And our reply to obesity in our communities um, is to start up a mobile gym. So we brought some gymnasium gear from a gym that was closing down at a very much reduced price. Thank wow. you very much. <laughs> and um, and so we're putting a lot of cardio gear into that container. And whilst the doctor's clinic's going around, we're going to bring new men into a waiting room. And this one here is, uh, um, this fixed site here is a, um, a garage. Now, if you look on YouTube and search under Naitarangi called and look under Da Lift, you'll see um, people, they lifted up that garage and carried it across the lawn into where its present site is. Um, we'll go inside there later on, but inside there is all our weightlifting gear, which we couldn't carry um, on the mobile um, gymnasium because the gear would just flop around inside it and damage everything. Yep. So all the weightlifting gear is inside there. There's two tonne of weightlifting gear in there. Now, it means that people can just go... That, again, that's used for poor people, right? And... Um, but it's mostly focused on triple XLs. People that are obviously have, a, have an issue with, with their weight, losing weight, losing weight. 
Yeah, uh, well, let's just refer to uh, people like us as being lettuce challenged. <laughs> <laughs> but but what, what see the thing is is that once all, the whole focus of this project is really just getting our people mobile, and um, at, uh, we've had a, a Māori guy who's a personal trainer, and I've sent him around into um, these same neighbourhoods which are going to be running the mobile gyms. And his sole purpose is to work with triple XLs in those neighbourhoods. If I go there and um, there's a scorny person in there, the whole program's going to get shut down. So you're only working with triple XLs, and uh, it's just getting them mobile, you know, like... And that program's called Fitness. It's WH, Fitness in the Dark. In the Dark. It's a wind program. Run like the wind. So so, <laughs> so basically on that program... Um, you know, when you're a triple XL, you don't want to be seen walking the streets or doing doing a workout in your leotards in the day. So a lot of people who are triple XLs want to do that at night. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, I mean, let's face it, the, there's people who are on that program who, who haven't been in a gym for quite a long period of time, mm-hmm. and um, they really want to. It's what we kind of call a smoking theory, like smokers always want to give up, but they don't. Um, triple XLs always want to um, uh, you know to get active but they can't or they can't find the motivation and it's this guy's sole job is to motivate people and they do it in the dark and it's just walking for a couple of minutes at a time yeah. the whole workout's only 15 minutes initially because there's some very very um, large people on that one um, once they spend a little bit a couple of months on that then they graduate into the mobile gym which we'll be delivering to them as well and there's one, one stage where I threatened to put the gym in uh, somebody's lawn if they didn't attend it. That was your method of motivation? Uh, yes, <clears throat> coercion. <laughs> so uh, imagine that, you know, like you wake up one morning, there's a bloody great gym sitting in your front <laughs> lawn. And, and, and I think that um, from there, the, the person said, yeah, OK, well, all right, I'll do it. And then they're able to move on from there and be involved in it. And people who are on it at the moment are just loving it. Oh, I think it's so cool, so cool. It just gives them purpose. Um, there's a Māori guy doing it. Um, and there's stuff in and around that, which is he will teach you, this personal trainer will will help you get you know get active for free. You have to do something for him. And uh, one of them is teaching him, between the sessions, uh, teaching him how to um, speak Māori, because she works in a kōngaru. And, and this is like they have they go for a little walk, have a rest, and in that rest period of, a, of five minutes, she's teaching him small phrases because he's not a very good Māori speaker. And I think that's pretty cool. And it's that oh, reciprocity, cool. that reciprocity <laughs> that happens in learning in Māori, which I think is pretty cool. So they, they actually see that they're doing something for him. Yeah. Now we just turn around again to Thunderbird too. You'll see some cars parked in underneath that tree there. That's our own organisation or. Um, uh, project over there underneath that tree. Now, we got a guy who works here who's roughly just a little under 200 kilograms. And um, he parks underneath that tree now to try and lose weight. He's lost heaps. And he just works across, sorry, he walks, he just walks across that paddock um, to his office. In the past, he'd park his vehicle right outside his door. So it's just that little heckle that he's yeah. been doing for what? Uh, about two months. Yeah. And uh, it was just that little piece of exercise and he's noticed a huge change in his weight which has forced him to change the way he eats and a whole range of things are happening for him now. Kapai. So should we go for a little yeah, sure. 
So I'm with Paula Stanley at the Naitirangi Runanga here at Tauranga Moana. Um, we're around about 100 or so metres from Whareroa Marae. And uh, we're heading into Thunderbird 1, a.k.a. the gym. Kapai. So this is a makeshift um, shed polder. Yeah, um, we just started moving the gear in. It, it was in an old garage. Old garage. Um, that was basically, it's the size of a three-car garage. And um, yesterday we just started moving the weights into it. As I said, it's, it's roughly about um, 2,000 kilograms of weights. Um, which is a heck of a lot. Yeah, um, it's heaps. And we're sort of carrying them one piece at a time, which in itself was a workout. <laughs> you can imagine. Um, got the, have you got the triple XL people to help you with that? Yeah, they were. Yeah, it was only the triple XLs who were doing it. And, and see, this is the thing I think about um, motivating Māori people to do stuff. Māori people need, I believe, different set of motivation to do things. And um, coming into a place like this for your people is different to coming in here for yourself. Um, once you organise, um, you know, a small gym in a place like this, um, you, and you're saying it's for the people, it means I know automatically that um, we have to um, we have to abide by what we're asking our people to do and start jumping on these on this equipment ourselves. Kapai. And so, can you talk to us about how you source the gym equipment? Uh, a, a local gym was closing down. Right. And um, they were trying to sell the gymnasium and everything in it. And it was for quite a bit of money, uh, but um, I got employed here to um, grind contracts, so we got out a very, very, very <laughs> yeah, good price. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, game plan was that we have you know, the weightlifting gear on one static site and we have some mobile gyms going. It's a mobile stuff, I think it's going to be really good because like the doctor service, uh, people cannot access or don't access doctors and nurses and gymnasiums in some cases because of accessibility and affordability. So they don't have a car to get to the doctor or don't have a car because nobody ever builds gyms in poor neighbourhoods. You never ever find a whole lot of doctor surgeries in poor neighbourhoods or in rich neighbourhoods on the other side of town. So um, uh, e- even if they wanted to go, they didn't have a vehicle to get there. And even if they did have a vehicle to get there, uh, for gymnasiums, uh, some of them are actually quite expensive, although yeah. there are some cheap ones around. Um, and, and we thought, well, hey, why, why don't we do something significant for our people and give them the ability to access a gym? Um, to access the, this gear, it's going to cost a person probably about $5 a month. Yeah, no, it's cheap. Yeah. But you gotta, you can't make it free, otherwise people take advantage of it. Yeah. And, um, and so the gear is... We're making the equipment, um, the mobile gym bit's going to be made available into poor neighbourhoods during the day. And at night, um, there are many sports clubs who would love to have access to cardio machines and weightlifting gear, and we're making it available to them at night. Um, you know the, the local um, steamers rugby team probably won't be turning up, and <laughs> we'd we'd have a lot of cobwebs around our telephone if we're waiting for them to ring. <laughs> but on the same token, it's not actually aimed at them. It's not for them. Yeah, yeah. it's for the triple X. Definitely for the triple XLs, and definitely for people who can't afford to access these services. And by taking this by taking this stuff into the neighbourhoods and putting it in there at designated times consistently, um, people know where to go. Um, and last night when we were at a doctor's practice up in Arataki, 
Um, the, there's a whole group of people lined up there waiting for the doctor as well, so they know that every uh, Thursday night from 6pm to 10pm the doctor's going to turn up there and um, they'll have access to it. And people stand in the rain, and all that is is that mm. they don't have choices. Right? It's either they either got to wait in their car or stand in the rain, wait for the doctor, um, or um, they don't get to see a doctor at all because they can't afford to go anywhere else. That said, um, obviously we try to get cover for people, which is what the containers are for. Yeah. Um, they're very, very simple inside. It's, it, it has a plastic chair in it. It's a big open space for the doctor and nurse. Um, and, and it's a small waiting room uh, in there for people. But, you know, you yeah. just got to try and do the best you can. So, Polter, walk us through um, what happens when a person goes to see the doctor. I mean, are, are, is there an exchange of money? Or no, no, no. All, all those services are free. and um, But we roster on uh, a social worker and sometimes a counsellor. There's normally two social workers on site at any one time, often because people who turn up to um, health services are not only have a health problem, but they've got social problems as well. Um, what we were finding at an earlier stage of this program was that we were pulling once every six days, uh, suicidal young people. And so we rostered on anything up to about five social workers and one specialised counsellor at night. And, and take my hat off to, to the team, is that they just turned up there every night because of their commitment to these young people. We weren't paying them for it, they were doing that voluntary. Mm. So I thought that was pretty cool. Can we talk about the areas in particular in Tauranga Mona that you concentrate? Oh, they're only, they're only in the poor neighbourhoods, uh, the Welcome Bays or section of Welcome Bay, uh, a section of Maryvale, um, in Katikati, uh, Papa Moore, um, a section of Papa Moore, which isn't, you know, Papa Moore has a really quite um, rich part of the neighbourhood yeah. and a not so rich part. Obviously, we're focusing on the not so rich part and Arataki. So um, we're in Thunderbird 1 at the moment and should we, should we move uh, into the doctor? Let's have a look and see where the doctors practice. It's How many doctors do you have on board uh, the We, we have um, three doctors and we choose from roughly about four or five nurses. Um, depending on how much interest is at the time. Uh, but generally we, we're operating with uh, you know, a couple of docs and some nurses. Mm. So, as you can see, it's starting to echo, but it's, um, it's pretty basic. It's just got a wall in there. It separates the doctor's part from the waiting room part. Um, there's a light there. All, all we're going to do now is a carpet guy's going to lay some carpet in there, cut down the sound in the place. Um, and, um, and then uh, we put a couple of plastic chairs in there and people sit down. Sometimes... Um, Particularly with when young girls come to see the doctor, um, they like to come in groups of six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So um, you need a bit of a space in there, and so they can all cram in there, and they can all, and they all see the doctor all at once. So th- that consultation will last about an hour and a half. <laughs> Bless your socks, got no girls here. So we're standing in the waiting room area at the moment, eh? Yeah, it's a yep, waiting room. Yep. Yeah, this is about two meters by two meters the waiting room itself. The rest is about four metres by two metres. And so would you put a, a, a bed, a doctor's bed in there, um, Holder? No. Oh, yeah. A couple of chairs, couple of chairs and a desk. No, we don't have it. All we have in there, uh, we never put a bed in there. It's All we have in there is just some chairs for people to sit in and doctor do the consult. It's pretty primitive. Um, but, but hey, it's mobile. It works. Man, it's, it's getting out to the people. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think... Well, uh, 
A while ago, um, we started off another program, which was our reply to violence in our community. And that's actually in and around um, gangsters in particular. So we offered um, free tattoo removal of any gang tattoo. And, was it a um, peaceful warrior? Program? It was part of a peaceful warrior, but we called it ungloved. Now, with with, uh, with people who've been in jail, they tattoo on the top of their hand. Uh, Love. Well, no, no, no they tattoo sometimes. a line around there which everybody calls a glove, and that's oh. called a prison glove. And so, um, when you when you read t- uh, prison tattoos, you, you, you know that when you see those lines on the top of the hand, um, you know they've often been in jail, and then a different insignia on there which can tell you which jail they've been into. So um, we had a program, we set up a program of tattoo removal of gang tattoos called Ungloved. And um, and so uh, had a whole group of uh, men and women come through with various um, stages of either gang tattoos or other type of gang insignia tattoos. And see, um, again on the same theory, people who want to smoke or want to give up smoking, they always want to do it, they don't have an opportunity. People who want to... Um, uh, you know, get thinner. <laughs> um, they also want to do it, but they don't have an opportunity. And people who want to be who are bad also want to be good, but they've got to find an opportunity. And if you've got hate and gang insignia all over your face, and you look at that every day, you're not going to be a happy chappy or a happy champion. So by the removal of those, um, that's our answer uh, to lowering levels of violence in our community. Now, once I get that done, and I've had, um, I've got some military tattoos on my arm, and uh, I've had a couple of little names taken off. Uh, it's, it's like, oh, I don't know, it's like, it was, it was, it was more painful than actually getting the things on, actually. And and yet there were guys here having tattoos taken off their faces and all sorts of stuff, uh, and uh, oh boy, they're pretty staunch. And um, I'd seen one guy here who had who spent an hour and a half um, having a tattoo removal done on a really delicate part of his body, which was a gang tattoo. And then he was, and the guy who was taking it off said, "In all my time of doing this work, I've never seen anybody so tough." And then, as he come out, um, as the guys come out of that service, we don't ask them for anything. The only thing we ask them to do is to help with this rock carving here. Mm. So what, what they do is that as they as they remove their tattoos from their body, they transfer some of the love and thank you into that rock and they, and they help carve that rock out. Right? And um, there's a guy come out of there and he was on that rock for about an hour and a bit and I said to him, hey bro, how you going? He goes, oh, no, cool. I said, jeez bro, that was pretty staunch. And he goes, yeah, sweet ass bro, sweet ass. And I said, how do you feel now? And he goes, I love it bro. <laughs> you know, and the guy started crying. And this is somebody who went through some of the toughest laser treatment, right? And he's crying, but it was because he was now able to be good. And that's what it's all about. And there were a lot of people who walked out from that treatment crying. Not because it was painful, but because they now had a new start on their life. So it was a form of release? Absolutely. They can now be good people, because they don't get judged by the gang that was written on their face or on their arm. I think that's really cool. Did that guy ever, I mean, was he looking for employment but was held back by that um, A lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, some of it is actually driven by employment. Um, A lot of of them, when they come to us, they they talk about that as a major issue. But I think that's because um, 
because that's only part of the deal. I think the major stuff is that they just want to leave it behind and start right. being good citizens, really. And this is part of the journey to it, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I arrived this morning, Paul, I noticed that uh, the floor guys are here. What are they doing? Well, um, done in Thunderbird too. Well, they're in the mobile gym. They're just putting laying carpet there, so that later on this afternoon, we can start putting um, some of the cardio gear into that into that container for the mobile gym. Right. And um, it won't be anything great. Uh, it's just some um, electronic bicycles and stuff. Now, wherever our mobile services go, we've got two generators. So um, wow. you can put it, like we could put a gym in the middle of that paddock and just pull out the generator, start it up, and it's and operating. Yeah. Same as with the doctor's clinic. has a small generator goes with that as well. So that's, um, that there is a bus. Oh, look at this cute bus. <laughs> it's not what you call a, um, a big bus that picks up people like, you know, waiting for the bus. It's a, well, is it a motorhome? Sorts, maybe? Yeah, it's a seven metre long bus, which a lot of people turn into a motorhome. Um, it has no windows on the sides and stuff. It was originally blocked out to be a um, um, a motorhome. When we first started with the um, with the mobile doctors clinic, what we originally planned to do was have the service operate outside of out inside buildings, and so we had rooms designated. And then what we found was that nobody was turning up. Right. We couldn't figure out why. No young Young people just, there's a couple of young people who turned up, but they just weren't going inside. And what we found was that when we walked outside, there's a whole lot of young people, you know, wandering around outside, but they wouldn't come inside the building. And some of it was a territorial thing for them. Mm. Um, and so we experimented with getting the old um, Moana AM caravan, and we put that outside and put a doctor in it, and then they started drifting into it. Right. <laughs> and I thought, wow, couldn't figure out why. All we know is that it, it worked. And then we were, and so then we went to um, manage to lease this bus and utilise that and found that it just took off from there. Now, um, once we've finished, I mean, there's a whole range of stuff, you know, like the the research that we've been conducting through the various schools that we're involved with um, suggests that roughly um, 80% of our 10 and 11 year old kids um, have um, are below the critical level of literacy and numeracy, oh. right? Eighty percent, and and some of that can can be resolved by um, you know people reading to kids. So imagine, like I, I think a really neat thing to do would be to um, get another one of these containers and turn it into a homework centre and put these homework centres anywhere you want. Mm, nice. And and so you 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 change the container so you can open it right out, and and so you, you just take the container beside the beach and then you read stories to young boys. Actually, are the big difficulty. Kia ora, Paula Stanley, manager at Te Runanga o Naitirangi in Tauranga Moana. We've posted up some pictures and links. Head to our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And while there, click on the links to our Facebook page where you can tell us what you're up to. And you'll also find the link on the page to join our weekly newsletters. And we do love your feedback, folks. Jeez, we've been getting heaps lately. Email us at teahika at radioNZ.co.nz. That's T E. A-H-I-K-A-A. with this week's Whakamarama mō te whakatauki. Tia kaha mai ki te, ki te taha wairua. 
That's very important to me. Very important to my mokos. Right from the time they're born, they, they get, you know, they get associated. I associate them with the wairua. They've got to have the wairua in the home. And it's all upon mum and dads. They're the ones to bring that into the home. And I think um, I've experienced it in a lot, lot of uh, walks of my life. I feel that that's what's like among our Māori people. Wairukuruku Mairi, I'm back with her next week. She was one of the recipients for the Tākingi Ihaka Award as we continue our coverage of Te Wakatoi Awards. And I'll be checking out and reporting back on the Māori Music Awards in Hastings. Now, we did expect to have a documentary this week as part of our Whakatefatefa series. That's now coming up on the 24th of September, and the subject is Tangihana. The scheduled one about gangs will have later on in the year. That's us for another week. He mihi tēnei ki tā mātou kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki te kai rā wiki wiki mihini, ka nui te mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu, mai te whanau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora!